Manitoba Premier Brian Pallister surprised many political watchers with his sudden resignation announcement less than two years since his PC party won a resounding mandate from voters. The move comes amid questions about his handling of the pandemic, as well as controversial comments about colonization and residential schools from within his own government. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. Winnipeg Sun columnist Josh Aldrich joins me to discuss Pallister's rise to the Premier's office, his legacy for Manitoba, and whether the pandemic changes how he will be remembered. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, we're even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Josh, a lot of people were taken off guard recently with the announcement that Premier Brian Pallister, who's been Premier of Manitoba for the last five or six years, has decided that it's time to bow out. Now he has had kind of a a track record in the last few years of being, you know, one of the provincial leaders of the conservative movement in this country. And I I do want to talk about some of that in a little bit, but, you know, he's been around for quite a while in political circles in Canada. So I'm wondering if you can kind of give us a bit of a political background of Mr. Pallister. Well, I I think when we think about Pallister, for a lot of people, what comes to mind is the uh, McLean's Magazine cover from 2018 that has the big push from the Conservatives uh, as a leadership standpoint. So you have Doug Ford on the cover, you have Andrew Shear, you have Jason Kenney, you have Premier Moe from Saskatchewan on there, and of course you have the tallest one in the background there, you have Brian Pallister. Now, uh, he started out as a teacher, and I think he actually served as part of the union membership back in the late 1970s, but he was only a teacher for a few years, even though he likes to kind of lean on that uh, past history with the union. Mm-hmm. Then shortly after that, 1980, he started a Pallister Financial in Portage Prairie. Uh, he's, he expanded that. He built that for about 12 years. And he's also president of the local chamber of commerce, the whole bit. So 1992, he decides to get into provincial politics he wins his seat in Portage La Prairie, and uh, 1995, he's re-elected, and he's appointed to the, the cabinet as a minister of government affairs. He did some pretty good work there that, uh, that kind of raised his profile within the party at the provincial level. What were some of the highlights of his time in cabinet? The biggest thing is he eliminated about 3,000 pages of statutory regulations which really helped to uh, streamline a number of things within the province, within the economy, within just just the general day-to-day business of the province. That really helped raise his profile. Also presided over changes to the Manitoba Disaster Assistance Board and uh, oversaw a lot of the provincial flood claims. Of course, there's a major Red River flood here in the mid-90s. He was a big part of that recovery effort. Uh, In 1997, that's when he decided to step down to seek federal politics, even though at the time there was talk that he might be a potential successor to the current premier and party leader at the time. So, uh, but he decided to throw his hat into the federal ring, so to speak. At the time, progressive conservative politics, they were in the wilderness, so to speak. You know, they had, they had had a rough go in the 1993 election as, as many will recall, they Mm -hmm. got completely upended and through the 90s, as the Reform Party became popular federally, there were a lot of questions about what to do with the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada. And so you have Brian Pallister, he decides, okay, well, I'm going to see what I can do to shake things up a bit. He saw himself as the future face. He's a youngish guy at that point. He's in his early 40s. Yeah, I think he saw himself as the future of the 
progressive conservative party of Canada. And he had hoped that members of the party felt the same, but ultimately that wasn't the case for him. What happened with that leadership bid? (laughs) With that leadership bid, he came in fourth. (laughs) And at that time, the party voted to bring Joe Clark back. And he didn't like that very much. Basically, he kind of said, you know what, you guys are voting for the past. And he decided to jump to the Canadian Alliance. And he kind of wrote off the federal conservative party at the time. He jumps to federal politics, gets involved in the Canadian Alliance, and then the Conservative Party of Canada backs uh, future Prime Minister Stephen Harper as leader. What's his role like in the newly united conservative movement as an MP and and eventually once the conservatives form government? When they were the the opposition party, he was part of the shadow cabinet as uh, the critic for national revenue. Then uh, after they formed government as a minority government, he was a backbencher but he was the chairman of the finance committee. And they actually looked into a number of things. They, they brought up a few uh, scandals. I guess this was more going back to his time as part of the shadow cabinet. Uh, David Dingwall, they brought up his spending irregularities to the tune of $750,000 in September 2005, I believe. An independent review mostly cleared Dingwall later of that, although they argue over some of those things. But that was his main thing. So when it came to some of the work he did as part of the cabinet, he really kind of went after uh, tax havens, specifically Barbados. But th- th- that was his main line, just trying to straighten out some of those financial issues. But he surprised a lot of people in 2008 when he decided, you know what, I'm not going to run in the next federal election. And then we didn't really hear from him for a few years until he decided to jump back into provincial politics. What was behind that decision for him to jump back into provincial politics, considering that, you know, he had been touted as a potential leader and premier back in the 90s? What what was it about that second leap back into the provincial arena? There was a vacuum. I think he was frustrated by the direction of politics, uh, especially the Conservative Party in Manitoba here. Hugh McFadden had just lost the 2011 provincial election and then announced his resignation. So there was a bit of a vacuum there Mm -hmm. and he stepped in and he was the only person who actually ran. So he was the presumptive nominee. He got through through acclamation, then won his McFadden seat in Fort White. After that, I think his main motivation though, he was, he was seeing a struggling economy in Manitoba. There's the rising debt due to kind of really unbridled spending by the NDP over the years. It was just getting worse. Mm -hmm. He also saw major issues with uh, some of the basic social programming like healthcare and infrastructure, which were awfully handled by the NDP during the, their 16 or 17 years in power. On top of all that, Manitoba had some of the worst poverty rates in Canada. There was a pretty big issue with a lot of those things. And that, that, that was kind of what drove him back into provincial politics, I believe. So 2012, he comes in as leader, takes over as opposition leader and spends the next four years just kind of hammering away at the NDP over those things. And and it worked. It worked. Yeah. I, I mean, in 2015, 2016, we see an election campaign. What were the main issues for him that he was fighting against the NDP in, in that election campaign? Well, the NDP, one of the big things that caused Selinger to cause the election at that point was the spiraling debt. And then he, uh, he starts raising the PST uh, despite promising not to. Uh, there were a number of things. And eventually he just kind of stepped down and kind of the vacuum opened up there. So one of the big things that was uh, at the forefront of it was two big projects by uh, Manitoba Hydro, the Kiosk Dam and the Pipehole 3 project. 
which actually added $10 billion of debt to the uh, Crown Corporation's bottom line, which they just finally sorted through with yet another review actually done by uh, former uh, Saskatchewan Premier uh, that's handled that way uh, with the review and just kind of really dove into all the different uh, regulations that were bypassed in order to push this project through that was supposed to be their version of uh, Alberta's oil and gas sector, that they're going to sell this energy across uh, the U.S. to opening up markets, all this other thing. Meanwhile, the U.S. said, you know what? We're good. We have natural gas. We're doing a lot of fracking. We're good. We don't need your energy. So really, they spent $10 billion on this project that wasn't really needed at the time. So that was a major splitting point. They also saw it as an opportunity to fix the healthcare system, which had some really, really long waiting times for just in the ER or even just to get uh, uh, surgeries done. So those were the main kind of splitting points, the taxes, the hydro project, and the healthcare system. And that's really what he attacked in his first three years in power because he did call a snap election in 2019. What was the motivation behind calling that snap election for him? It was more just seeking an additional mandate. Like he didn't need more of a mandate because he already had the largest mandate in the province's history. I think it was more of a mandate to kind of push forward after uh, putting through the first phase of the health care reform, which really centralized a lot of power within Winnipeg, which has about two thirds of the province's population. And because the second phase of the reforming of health care is focusing more on rural health care. And uh, I, I think he was just trying to really just kind of focus in and get another mandate and just kind of be that final push. I think he had a game plan in mind on how he would exit politics. And I think that did play into his decision for the 2019 election call because he didn't necessarily need to call the election for 2019 at that point. Mm-hmm. So I think there might have been some ego at play there, but the province still rewarded him with the second biggest majority mandate uh, in the province's history. The health care reform actually looked pretty good up until the pandemic because what it did, it did lower wait times considerably in ERs. And what it did, it took the six, Winnipeg six emergency rooms, shrank it to three emergency rooms plus three urgent care centers. So they're able to divert the different types of calls, the different types of emergencies to the different places. And and that helped stop the ERs from being completely clogged up. And they they just really drove home a lot of efficiencies. They're trying to change just the way healthcare was done in the province. And and it worked, like I said, up until the pandemic. And the second wave was completely exposed and they cracked it wide open. When people think about Manitoba politics and to be honest, outside of Manitoba, unless you're really focusing on politics, you're not necessarily thinking about Manitoba politics, but it seemed like he had kind of a pretty low-key approach to governing. He had some priorities that he wanted to take care of, make government more efficient, as he talked about, kind of deal with some some issues in social programs and education system, things like that. But otherwise, he's, he seemed to kind of fly under a lot of people's radar. And then you hit the pandemic and you know, he's seen as trying to be this stern, scolding dad, but at the same time, he's criticized for not implementing restrictions or measures more quickly to clamp down on things. What is his pandemic report card going to look like when this is all said and done? I think it'll look better in the grand scheme of things when we're years removed from it. I don't think any government has handled it very well. Other premiers like Doug Ford and 
uh, Horgan and some of these other premiers that kind of put themselves at the forefront and they tried to make themselves the face of the pandemic response. Uh, Pallister took exact opposite approach. He put uh, the chief provincial public health officer, Dr. Brent Rusin, kind of to the forefront. Uh, and he's more kind of carried on as a bit of a cheerleader for uh, Rusin and a bit of an authoritarian when he's needed to be. Uh, he talked about the stern dad approach. He did go viral before Christmas when he said, I'm the one canceling Christmas uh, as he cried. That's picked up by CNN and all these other things. But at that point, it was to kind of take the heat off of Brent Rusin and telling people not to gather over Christmas. So he's, he's tried to lay down in front of a few of these uh, trains that are rolling through. And I don't think the public quite responded well to that because of that authoritarian approach, the stern dad approach that he has had and kind of wagging a finger at people and telling them to do as they're told. And that kind of approach definitely has an expiring shelf life, mm-hmm. especially during the second wave. Despite the level of health orders and restrictions that were in place, we still saw some of the highest rates of, of COVID in the country. Uh, we had some pretty big tragedies where long-term care facilities were kind of overwhelmed by COVID-19, a lot of deaths. And then again, in the third wave, we had the same kind of a situation, but it was still kind of the hands-off. The, the guy who's running the show is uh, Dr. Rusin. I'm just here kind of cheering him on. We're deferring to him the entire time. So there's been good and there's been bad. I personally like that he has kind of taken that hands-off approach to it, although it's good to have a leader. He, he has been there for most of the major announcements and changing of health orders. It's also allowed him to kind of say, look, we are following the science. We are following medical advice. We are listening to our experts. It's not me who's running the show. It's them. And I think Winnipeg's actually, or Manitoba rather, has actually done fairly well in the pandemic, despite the last two waves. The first wave hardly hit at all. Once they were able to actually get vaccines from the federal government, they focused heavily on the vaccine program. And it's been successful. They have some of the highest rates of vaccination in the country and in North America. And Manitoba is lucky because we have a bit of a two or three week buffer uh, between the rest of the provinces for whatever reason on COVID coming into Manitoba. So the different waves. So that, that two or three weeks, I think, has made all the difference in the world in getting our vaccination rates up before that fourth wave hits us. We loosened things up on August 5th to almost wide open. Mm-hmm. So we're two and a half weeks out from that. And we still have very, very low rates of COVID-19. So it's a full incubation period plus a little bit more. We haven't seen the spike in cases like they have in Alberta, for example. So I think that's played a big role. And I think that will look a lot more positive in the grand scheme of things. While everyone's been dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, one other issue that the country's been kind of grappling with has been a reckoning with our residential schools system and the discovery of unmarked graves at a number of these sites across Canada. And Pallister himself has kind of found himself caught in the middle of this, both for his own comments, as well as for comments of the departure of his Indigenous Relations Minister and comments of that minister's successor. Does that weigh on his legacy? And how has he managed to reconcile some of those controversies with his political legacy? Honestly, it's going to be a black mark on his legacy, but I think because we're in the storm of it right now, again, it's going to look a lot worse than it will in the grand scheme of things. 
the comments that he made, though, are problematic, to say the least. And for those who aren't necessarily aware of what he said, he can definitely be his own worst enemy sometimes. And, you know, as a member of the media, I do like that. I like that he's willing to go off script but he does have that habit of sticking his foot in his mouth. <laughs> and he has difficulty sometimes making the point he wants to make. On, a, on Canada Day, there was a massive march down Portage Avenue to the Canadian Museum of Human Rights, kind of in support of Indigenous people in the fallout of the discoveries of residential schools. Now, when that ended, another protest started up at the legislature, and that breakout group, uh, they tore down two pretty iconic statues, one of Queen Victoria that stood for over a century and then there's one of Queen Elizabeth II that was tore down as well. The, actually, the head of Queen Victoria was uh, decapitated, and I think they found it later in a river, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, now, on this, it took Pallister forever to actually respond to these actions, but on December 8th, he finally did. And while he was attempting to be kind of eloquent, he at the same time completely downplayed colonization uh, of Canada saying people came here to this country before it was a country and since, and they didn't come here to destroy anything. They came here to build. They came here to build better and build. They did. They built farms. They built businesses. They built communities and churches too. They built these things for themselves and one another, and they built them with the dedication and pride. And so we must dedicate ourselves to building it again. And that went over like a freaking lead balloon, which caused Indigenous Affairs Minister Eileen Clark to say, you know what? I'm out. I'm done. She resigned. They had a few civil servants that were serving on committees who were Indigenous, and they said, we're done. <laughs> then Dr. Alan Lajmodier, he stuck his foot in it minutes after being sworn in as the new Indigenous Affairs Minister. And Lajmodier, to give some context, he's Métis as well. But his comments on July 16, he said, at the time, they thought they were doing the right thing. In retrospect, it's easy to judge the past. From my knowledge of it, the residential school system was designed to take Indigenous children and give them the kind of skills, abilities that they would need to fit into society as it moves forward. And as he says that, the opposition leader here, this is as exciting as it gets in Manitoba for politics. Uh, NDP opposition leader Wab Canoe interrupts him uh, to educate him on his portfolio and says it's the express intent of the residential schools to kill the Indian in the child. Uh, you can't be out here defending residential schools if you want to work with Indigenous communities. Now, coming out of these comments, it took Pallister almost a month to apologize for his own remarks. So it was about three weeks for him to actually address Dr. Alan Lajmodier's comments as well. And he tried to say it was, he misspoke, is basically what he said. He, he didn't get his message out properly. Mm -hmm. Clearly, he didn't get his message out <laughs> properly. A week or two after that, he says, you know, I'm not going to seek re-election. And it's a surprise he actually did hang on this long. And I say that not because of this specific controversy. We've been speculating about his resignation since before Christmas, because he is 67 years old. He does have his vacation home in Costa Rica, which is another thing altogether. And there's been a lot of speculation about him not wanting to spend another winter in Canada <laughs> because he has this vacation home in uh, Costa Rica. So there was uh, expectation all the way along that he'd be announcing that he wouldn't run again. And then the last day of the session in the spring, he says, I'm going to be back for the fall. And uh, they had also just recently announced that he was elected the new chairman of the premier's group. Uh, and they were going to be hosting them in October. So 
he'd certainly be there for that running that. So there's a, that was actually the big surprise is that he would be there. So now that he's announced he's not going to seek re-election, it's up to the PC party to set up the uh, parameters for the leadership search and the convention and all the rest. We can all sympathize with the idea of not wanting to spend another winter in, in Canada <laughs> and all wish that we had a, a vacation property down in Costa Rica. But, you know, I, I do find it kind of strange. You have a guy who comes back to provincial politics, he serves in opposition, he wins government, and then he calls a snap election three years in to get an even stronger mandate. And then two years into that mandate decides, no, I'm going to step down. Like, what was the motivation, do you figure, or do we know? Is it is he kind of guarded about what the motivation was, that he just felt it was time? It just all, the timeline for it seems very strange to me. He did not answer many questions uh, regarding his motivations to step down. I think the assumption among the press and others is that he was hoping to be able to hang that mission accomplished banner with the pandemic and say, I'm out, look at me, I I rescued Manitoba from the pandemic or all this type of thing. But his comments probably expedited his need to step down. Basically, to at this point, because we're about two years out from the next provincial election, at this point, it's just to kind of give the next leader as much time as possible to build a new brand around themselves and to try to regain a lot of that lost popularity to... Uh, the NDP, because they're going to have a pretty big fight on their hands come next election. It's not going to be easy. So the the more the next leader can distance themselves from Pallister, the better. And just coming out of that, because the relationship, especially with the First Nations people in this province and the PC government, is not a strong one at all. And uh, so it's just that it's an effort to give them as much time as possible to rebrand themselves, to rebrand the the province and to kind of set that new direction before an election. I still find it kind of strange that he called that snap election in 2019. And that was shortly before I arrived in Manitoba. So I'm not 100% sure of the political climate and the decisions that he made at that time. But I think it was mostly to kind of set up his career trajectory and exit out of politics while setting up the next generation of PC party to carry the government forward with uh, with his agenda. But we'll, we'll see how that goes over the next two years. Well, we'll see whether, you know, another candidate like him steps forward to take on the mantle of the Progressive Conservative Party in Manitoba and how they fare against the NDP in the next election. Josh, thanks for your time. No problem. Anytime. 10-3 is produced by Sean Knox. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Josh Aldrich. More from him at winnipegsun.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.